good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Genesis, uh, sorry, not Genesis, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. As we continue in our series through the letter to the Hebrews, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20, so through the end of the chapter. As you're finding that passage, just two, two verses earlier, 7 and 8, the author to this letter gives this uh, word picture for us that really helped guide our look at verses 1 through 8 of last week, and, and I think it also informs 9 through 20. And so listen to this before we read from our passage. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And now continuing in God's word, please follow along. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise." For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their dispute, disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hear the word of the Lord. So the outcome we saw in verses 1 through 8, and now in verses 9 through 20, proceed from, you could say, alternate responses to the word of God falling on a people. In that word picture of the land, the word 
is what falls on the land and what is produced actually reveals whether or not the word was received and a heart regenerated by the work of the Spirit and it produces good fruit that receives God's blessing or whether that rain, the word of God, falls on a different type of soil and it produces thorns and thistles and it is worthless and near being cursed and its end is to be burned. Both for ourselves and for each other, we must be aware. So this is, this is going back to last week. And so if you were not here with us, verses 1 through 8 are difficult verses. And we, by God's grace, worked our way through them. And so I would refer you to that recording on our website. We're going to be touching on some of it. But what we see is this trajectory that begins even back in chapter 5 with dull hearing. It begins with dull hearing, and then on those who are living a very immature walk with the Lord where they're only able to, to feast on, on spiritual milk when God has before them spiritual meat to feast upon. They're not there yet. There's this progression of dull hearing only living on milk, then it proceeds to, if that continues, proceeds to a deliberate repudiation of God's Son, what we saw in verses 1, 4 through 6 primarily. And then what ends is this word picture of thorns and thistles, no good fruit being produced, it being worthless, cursed, and in the end to be burned. Now, this is a terrifying portrait of irreversible apostasy, what we saw last week. And it really is given to, to be a caution, a warning for us to beware for ourselves and each other of any movement whatsoever towards that dangerous cliff. What we have been seeing again and again in Hebrews and in the Christian life, what it reveals to us is there's no such thing as neutral, kind of coasting along. We're either moving in a direction that would produce good fruit by the work of God in our lives, or we're not. We're moving in a different direction. And this sluggishness and laziness that we saw in chapter 5 and again in our passage this morning is to wake us up. It matters what's going on in our lives day to day. And it has a huge impact on our assurance. And so the author Though mentioning all of this, what we see as our passage begins in verse 9 is that he is fully convinced that those to whom he is writing, unlike those who have fallen away, will not fall away. He is confident in this. For them, he is sure of better things. He is certain by God's grace that good soil in their hearts will produce a good crop. And I, I want to help us this morning see that that producing of a good crop has a lot to do with this full assurance of hope. That, that for a believer, brothers and sisters, we can live this life with, with full assurance of hope. To have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And in a very real sense, what we see in these verses 9 through 20 is the author giving us something tangible, a roadmap to, to look at and pray that the Lord would help 
make real and alive in our lives. And so this is a very helpful passage for, for those in the faith that want, want their lives to produce good fruit, a good crop, and want to experience assurance, full assurance of the hope that is set before us. And so there are three kind of points that I see in this passage um, that, that kind of lays out this roadmap. The first is this good crop of assurance is produced by cultivating love for our brothers. It's really interesting how important how we love one another affects our assurance of hope. Secondly, imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. We are called to imitate. And then lastly, to hold fast to our hope because of our sure and steadfast anchor who holds fast to us. And so we're going to look at these three, three truths, three kind of points along this roadmap that helps us strive towards that full assurance of hope. As one Puritan said many, many years ago, Souls that are big in hope will not be long without sweet assurance. The author to the letter uh, to the Hebrews, the author of this letter, presses us to look to obtaining this full assurance, which I would submit to you is clearly evidenced in this passage something that is attainable. This should bring much encouragement. There are many who walk this pilgrimage of the Christian life who continually battle with assurance. Maybe that's you this morning. I have always struggled to really know that I am loved by the Lord and, and held by Christ all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, if you are in that place, heed the words of this passage. So number one, this good crop of assurance is produced by cultivating love for his name and serving the saints. We see this in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Whatever the case with the recipients of this letter, these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, were showing their love for God by serving their fellow brothers and sisters in practical ways. This love for other Christians solidified the author's confidence in them. By watching their lives, he was able to actually respond in this way and provide encouragement. One of the most important catalysts of spiritual confidence, assurance, is spiritual fruitfulness. Our faithful activity as Christians actually fuels assurance. This is why the author longs for these Christians to show the same earnestness for the faith that they demonstrated when they first believed. I think this is what's got this author so worked up is because he knows what they were like when they first came to faith in Christ. And the cost of the call for these Hebrew Christians to lay down all that they knew of old to run to the substance. They were living in the shadow and all that went into Judaism and the old covenant 
And they had to sacrifice and endure a lot of persecution and heartache to run towards the fulfillment of all that, which was Christ the Lord. And so he knows what they were like early on. So an example of this is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you were brought to faith in Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Remember what the Lord was doing in your lives at the beginning, and press on. And earnestness and diligence in their faith grows, or as, sorry, as earnestness and diligence in their faith grows, so too will their fullness of hope until the last day. That was true for them. That is true for us. As our earnestness and diligence in the faith grows, so too will our fullness of hope grow until the last day. Now we see the term sluggish used again in verse 12. It points us back to the sluggishness that the author addressed at the end of chapter 5 in verse 11. There he was admonishing those who had become lazy and dull in their hearing. Now he is encouraging believers not to become sluggish, but to instead pursue things that result in assurance. Please hear me, brothers and sisters. We should be alarmed if we start to become sluggish or lazy in the faith because it is a symptom of the clouding over of our eyes of the perspective of hope. Your laziness and sluggishness many times is an indication that you have grown fuzzy to the realities of an eternal perspective, the hope that is ours in Christ. That could be due to a host of earthly circumstances that are pressing in upon you. The waves are crashing and your eyes, spiritual eyes, are becoming dim to what what is of foremost importance. What is ours in Christ Jesus, heirs of the Son, The Puritan Thomas Brooks once said, Real love to the saints, loving brothers and sisters, is a spring of assurance. And this spring is a never-failing spring. This spring is in the weakest as well as in the strongest saints. Here from 1 John 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Love of our brothers is not the cause of our passing from death to life. 
from a natural state, dead in your trespasses and sins, to a spiritual state, from heaven or from hell to heaven, but our love for one another is evidence that God has worked in us. He goes on to say, Thomas Brooks, the riches, honors, languages, and favors of this world cannot be obtained without much trouble and travail, much work. Anything in this life worth having requires work. Without rising early and going to bed late, and do you think that assurance, which is of more worth than heaven and earth, can be obtained by cold, lazy, heartless services? There are five things that God will never sell at a cheap rate. Christ, truth, his honor, heaven, and assurance. He that will have these must pay a good price for them or go on forever without them. What great counsel from this old Puritan. The indulging of laziness, sluggishness, and carelessness, I would submit to you this morning, hinders your assurance. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but God has made a separation between joy and idleness, between assurance and laziness, and therefore it is impossible for anyone to bring these things together that God has separated. To obtain a full assurance of hope, to have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, the author first calls to believers like us to love one another. And then he tells them, number two, to imitate those who through faith and patience and inherit the promise. So throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer, the author, encourages believers to imitate saints from the Old Testament. If you are not familiar with this, I encourage you to go and read Hebrews chapter 11, which I think he, uh, chapter 6 verse 12 anticipates. We find an, an impressive list of Old Testament saints whose faith and patience is worthy of our emulation. And so the author now cites the experience of one of those who live by faith, who is worthy of imitation, Abraham. What we see in the example of Abraham is that faith and patience was rooted, rooted in trusting God. He believed God to be just. He believed that God could not and would not lie. It is impossible for God to lie. He anchored his whole life upon trusting God. God called him. God told him where to go. God told him what to do. And Abraham is a, a wonderful example for us to emulate in walking by faith and patience in waiting upon the Lord to fulfill his promises that he has made. Going all the way back to Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that his reward shall be very great. But we all are familiar with the story. He was an old man and at this point childless. 
His wife was barren, and he let the Lord know that he had not given him an offspring. So this promise, how in the world could it possibly be fulfilled if he did not have an offspring? And the Lord let Abraham know that regardless of seemingly impossible odds, no matter how hard the situation, his very own son would be his heir. And the Lord brought him outside, if you remember in Genesis 15, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you can number them. And then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And we're told, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, fast forward, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 picks up and kind of fills in a little bit of the details. Romans 4 18 through 25, speaking about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Please hear these next verses. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here's the thrust. God was able to do what he promised. In our our passage, we read in verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, stay with me for just a few minutes here. It's interesting that later in Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 13, we read, these these believers of old who live by faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then in verse 39 of chapter 11, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So Old Testament believers in general did not receive what was promised. So what are we to make of verse 15 of our passage here, where it says, Having waited patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. In what sense did Abraham obtain what was promised? I want us to to think just for a moment about this. Abraham waited a hundred years for the pregnancy of of his son, uh, the pregnancy of his wife, to have his son Isaac, who would be the offspring that God had promised him, And years later, after Isaac was born, 
If you remember, as the story progresses into Genesis chapter 22, God tested Abraham. In that chapter, God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham's experience, even though he could not understand God, demonstrated that God could be trusted. Think for a moment what was just asked of one who had waited for this promised son. As they're making their climb, this is what we read in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 22. And Isaac, his son, said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. Isaac said, behold, the the fire and the wood But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When on Mount Moriah, the Lord provided a ram to die instead of Isaac. And so, in Hebrews 11, we're actually told, Abraham, figuratively speaking, received his only son of promise back from the dead. So Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 says this, he considered that God, so this is how he could respond to his son who's saying, dad, there's wood. I know what we're about to do, but there's no lamb. What's going on here? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so Isaac's conception And figuratively, his resurrection on Mount Moriah began the fulfillment of God's promise to multiply Abraham's descendants to countless numbers. And so in that sense, Abraham obtained the promise. When the author appeals to Abraham as an example for us to imitate, he is pointing down a life lived in response to the promise of God. The author wants us to see Abraham, but more importantly, he points our gaze to the one that Abraham trusted in. The focal point, please don't miss this, is God and who he is that made it possible for Abraham to be an example worth imitating. And so I want want you to hear several verses here from our passage Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Two unchangeable things. The two unchangeable things are first the promise that God has made, and the second unchangeable thing is the oath that he has made. And so you have a promise which was strengthened by an oath. 
in a sense, there's a lesser to greater explanation happening here to help us understand. The lesser would be giving examples of man, how we would make a promise to someone, make an oath to make sure that they understood that what we have said, we'll, we'll, we will actually do. And many times you see examples of someone making an oath in the name of the Lord because he is to be trusted. And if I go against what I've said to you, may God hold me accountable. May I be cursed based off of this oath that I have made. This lesser is pointing to a greater. God, when he makes a promise, there's no one greater for him to, to swear by. And so it, it almost seems a little redundant for God, whose word is absolute truth, to give an oath to his promise. But, but we have to see this. He is doing this in his grace and mercy towards us. He's condescending to human frailty, not as a reflection of something lacking in him and his promises that are made. Remember, his promises cannot fail and stand in no need of being strengthened. But this double assurance, a promise and an oath, he did for the sake not only of Abraham, but also for all the heirs of the promise. All those who live by faith, whose line starts with Abraham, continues through his son Isaac, all the men and women of faith, all the way to the present, with Christ as the focal point of fulfillment. For the line is the line of faith. And when we look at this line of faith, it is specifically those who have believed upon the promise, the promise of the Messiah, who have had faith in Christ. And when we look to Christ, we realize that this promise finds its realization in him. And so all who live by faith are united to Christ as heirs of the promise made to Abraham. This is why the Apostle Paul spends so much time kind of belaboring this point in Galatians, for example. Paul tells the Galatian believers in chapter 3, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are not Abraham's offspring according to the flesh, but by faith in God, we are part of Abraham's offspring. We live by faith, heirs according to the promise. The purpose of all of this promise and oath is to persuade us that God can be trusted. God can be trusted. All that he has said to his people, he will bring to fruition. The phrase there, it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible, is used four crucial times in the book of Hebrews. It is impossible, as we saw last Lord's Day, to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's word and the powers of the, of the coming age, and who have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them to, to repentance. We see the second, it is impossible in this text. It is impossible for God to lie. In chapter 10, we hear, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then lastly, 
in, ver- in chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. In our passage, it is impossible for God to lie. Many of us would probably think, well, of course, that, that's like a Sunday school answer. Can God lie? No, it's impossible for God to lie. It is here in this chapter to seep deep into our hearts as we are struggling in this life to have the assurance of the hope set before us. You need to have this as your firm foundation. God does not, will not, cannot lie. And he has promised amazing things to his children. Charles Spurgeon picks up on this struggle in this life in one realm in the area of guilt. When we are battling with guilt, it makes us very suspicious. And he writes, guilt is very suspicious. When you, when you have done wrong to a man, you cannot then believe what that man tells you. Nothing renders you so full of doubt towards another as your own consciousness of having acted unjustly towards him. So now think about that in regards to your relationship with God. Now, when a sense of guilt comes over the soul, our flesh, nature, begins to say, can the Lord be truly a sin-pardoning God even after all that I've done? Can he love me as he does or as he says he does? Such a base, ungrateful rebel like me, can he really love me the, the way he says he does in his son? Can I really have confidence that I, I have a part of this great salvation that he has provided and set forth through Christ? Knowing the suspicious nature of a guilty heart, God has made his oath and promise to be anchors for our souls, that our faith may ride out every storm of doubt. All of God's gracious dealings with us spring from his unchanging nature. Our God is unchanging, and that is a doctrine that we must cling to. It is impossible for him to lie. Here from Ephesians chapter 1, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. If it is according to his will, he will make it happen. He is faithful to all that he has promised. And so to obtain a full assurance of hope, to have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, the author first calls believers to love one another. Then he tells them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And so we've looked at Abraham. And lastly, to hold fast to our hope because of our sure and steadfast anchor who holds fast to us. The last two verses, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope 
that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Heirs of the promise are those who have fled to Christ for refuge. Those who are finding their their hope, their assurance in Christ and Christ alone. In salvation, when one has been united with Christ by faith, we, we refer to that as our union with Christ. And this is one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith, union with Christ. And I really actually believe that it's important in understanding these last two verses. This vital union with Christ that a believer experiences by grace through faith in Christ makes them recipients of all the spiritual blessings that are found in him as our mediator and redeemer. All the spiritual blessings that are available to Christ as the eternal Son of God, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the Messiah, the great high priest, if you are united with him by faith, all of those promises, those blessings are yours in Christ. The hope set before us is the assurance that at last, on the last day, we shall be with Christ and we shall be like Christ. John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In Christ, we will be with him. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We shall be with Christ, and we shall be like Christ. Christ is the sure and steady anchor of the Christian soul. And I love this, this imagery, this metaphor of an anchor. It helps us. It helps the original recipients, and it helps us understand this full assurance of hope that is available to those in Christ. So thinking about a ship's anchor, the anchor stabilizes a ship so that it does not drift off course and or crash into rocks. The anchor is that support that keeps the ship safe. Now, what's interesting about, you know, we can, we can understand a ship's anchor, it goes down. It descends into the depths of the water that from the, from the surface, the, the waves are crashing and everything can be chaotic and out of control. But if that anchor is fixed down below, it, just, it has descended and, and grabbed onto whatever it needs to grab onto, we are held firm. Now, the author, in a sense, is, is pointing our gaze upward, and so he's, he's changing a little bit. He adapts this metaphor, and instead of descending, he is, he is painting this picture of, of this anchor that we have ascending into the throne room of heaven. And so there's a little bit of a difference here, but it's still the same idea that if you understand and take hold of the reality of what your anchor is, is tethered to, anchored upon in heaven, everything else in this world 
is manageable by God's grace and his help, no matter what is crashing upon you. And so to just think about this ascending deep into heaven, into the inner place behind the curtain, we've got to just hear a little bit about what's going on. The inner place behind the curtain into which the anchor of Christian hope enters is a reference to what we read in the Old Testament about the Holy of Holies and first the, the, the wilderness tabernacle and then later in the Jerusalem temple, which was separated from the outer chamber known as, known as the holy place. And there was this curtain that separated. Now, the Holy of Holies was a place of the glory of the presence of God from which all but the high priest just one day a year was able to actually enter in, otherwise completely excluded to man. But now, thanks to the perfect atonement accomplished by Christ, access into the heavenly holy of holies is now open. This heavenly sanctuary of God's eternal presence, of which the earthly temple was but a shadow, we now, we know that there is a substance and Christ is there. And he has opened up a way for all those who by faith have laid hold of the hope that is set before us. I pray that we could just spend time meditating and thinking about this reality. Christ, who lived a perfect life, the life that none of us could ever live, he perfectly obeyed the Father, then went to the cross in our place, dying a death that we deserve to die. He was our substitute. Being uh, killed, dying on the cross, he was then buried. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. Resurrection. Our Lord and King is now alive, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. This reality is taking place right now. Even though our physical eyes cannot see it, our spiritual eyes need to grab hold of it. Because it is our anchor, it is what brings the assurance, full assurance of the hope that is set before us. As a forerunner, he is the one who goes on ahead in order to open up a way for those who would follow after. Please hear this. If you are in Christ, he is a forerunner. That means you being in union with him, have a great hope that you will one day follow. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, we're told, meaning he has experienced resurrection. We who are in him will also experience resurrection. He is the forerunner who has gone in and made a way. This is very different than the, Le the Levitical priesthood. And for these Hebrews Christians, so important for them to hear what you thought was better was not even close to the reality that you now experience in Christ. The Levitical priesthood could no way make a way for people to enter. They were only allowed one day out of the year to enter into the Holy of Holies and draw near, but it was strictly prohibited for anyone else, any of the people to follow and draw near. But we in Christ, on the other hand, now have access to the very presence of God and are encouraged to draw near with full confidence, not in our own righteousness, but in an alien righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Calvin writes that our hope 
rises and flies aloft because it's finding nothing to stand on in this world. It cannot rely on any created things, but it finds its rest in God alone. From the song that we sung right before the sermon, while the tempest rages on deeper, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor. Through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, O oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. There is now an enjoyment of stability. That, that word ballast, when we're talking about being fixed, you think about a ship that doesn't have its ballast. It's going to be rocking and out of control, but a firm ballast means that there is stability in the midst of whatever is crashing in upon us. There is now a enjoyment being offered to believers, a stability that, that once was not outside of Christ, but for those who have fled for refuge in Christ, we have a firm and steady anchor. I want to end with Thomas Brooks again, this Puritan, who has written much on the assurance of salvation. We must not only strive after assurance, but we must strive and show all diligence to attaining of that rich and full assurance which will scatter all fears and doubts, which will make us all patient in waiting, courageous in doing, and cheerful in suffering and which will make a heaven in a man's heart on this side of heaven and make him go singing into paradise despite all the calamities and miseries of this life. Brothers and sisters, may we strive in earnestness and diligence for this full assurance of the hope set before us. Let us pray. Father, you are ever faithful, and ever true. Father, this morning, for those who struggle with assurance, those who are tempted even now to despair, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this roadmap, so to speak. We pray you would help us to love our brothers and sisters and understand how you move and bless and build up in the midst of us being faithful to our calling. Help us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And Father, may we hold fast to the anchor, for it shall never be removed. Father, in all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.